You're listening to Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. My name is Megan Pitcock, and today I'm here with uh, Michigan State Representative Andrew Fink. Thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me, Megan, as always. So recently, we've talked about the budget before, but uh, Governor Whitmer has officially signed it into um, into action. Uh, can you talk about what changes people can expect from the budget and um, how that will affect things going forward? Well, I mean, before uh, before even looking at like individual changes on um, on the budget, I would I would first just talk about kind of the overall um, the overall amount of, of the budget, the overall effect that the state is growing itself through this budget. Um, in terms of full-time employees, there's, I think, more than a 1,000 uh, being added uh, into the various departments through this budget. And we're spending virtually all of our, uh, of our surplus. So we started the year with like a $9 billion surplus, and we're ending the year with essentially a few hundred million, I think, going into next year. So those, I think, are the kind of things that people need to understand at the, at the high level. Um, in terms of individual changes, I mean, the, you know, the budget itself is primarily, uh, I mean, there, there are boilerplate issues which condition spending. Uh, the biggest effect in boilerplate has actually been the removal of certain language. So uh, removal on, on, uh, of a prohibition of, of a state entity, say, requiring um, uh, proof of vaccination for various things. That kind of, that kind of thing has been removed. Um, so the, the text of the budget is, is mostly um, uh, reduced rather than new conditions placed on it. And that's, of course, because that leaves the governor more free and the governor and the legislature both being of the same party and the governor kind of tending to dominate the legislature. That's sort of the way that uh, uh, they like it to be. Um, so if, if there are other kind of more specific changes that you want to talk about, we, we can get into them. But that's what I would say the big picture of this thing is. Okay. Um what are some more specific changes? Well, so there there are a lot of um, of changes which I think relate to to pretty partisan priorities of the of the majority. So there are you know issues like um, uh, diversity, equity, inclusion, uh, officers or um, uh, directors or whatever in various departments. Uh, you know. $7 million uh, to encourage uh, farming practices, which are thought to be sort of climate-friendly, um, $20 million for energy efficiency audits in schools, uh, rather than just letting the schools, you know, find the efficiencies that will save them money uh, at, at the local level. Um, enormous numbers of, uh, of individual projects across the districts uh, but basically only the districts of the majority members. So th- those are some of the kind of the, the things that, that it, I mean, among these projects, $9.8 million for seven pools and splash pads, um, including, as I may have already mentioned to you, splash pads on the shore of Lake Michigan, which is already a pretty significant water feature. So that's, the, that's kind of the nature of this is growth of government overall and pet projects in districts of the majority. Why did they choose to sort of spend the surplus rather than save for the future? I think there are two possibilities. The one is um, 
uh, lack of certainty about how much control they'll be able to continue to maintain as the um, as the legislature, you know, as early as next year, could have a new majority coming in. Uh, but I think probably secondarily, and and for some people maybe subliminally, and others maybe not so subliminally. Uh, I think the desire is to spend the money and create the expectations on the part of the people, essentially new new kind of social services, that if the state were to then take away, they think would be unpopular, and therefore the spending, which is supposedly one time, uh, will wind up becoming a priority that is difficult to undo. So I, I think that's probably the, the the best explanation I can give you for the for the the nature of it. In my opinion, saving for uh, the future is important for the state. I mean, for somewhat different reasons than it is for you know a person saving for retirement or something. Um, uh, but partially because the the state spent much of its reserves uh, in 2020, and we wound up getting so much money uh, from the federal government and the inflationary effects that that caused wound up you know resulted in. The normal state revenue is also being higher, uh, and we had an opportunity to save some of that or pay down debt so that we can save money in the long term going forward. Um, neither of those things has been a top priority here, uh, which is why I did not support this budget. Mm-hmm. Um, do you, Does the budget have any – well, I guess this is the other way around. Um, do the recent bills that Governor Whitmer signed – there's one about energy, there's another relating to teachers' unions – do those – um, are those coming from the budget? Like, is there a relationship between the two? Which we'll talk about those. I'm sorry, you said energy, and, and what was the other one? Megan? The um, teachers' unions, uh, giving more power to them, the education yeah. bills um, that she signed recently. So I, I don't think either of those things are accomplished directly in the budget, but oftentimes there are uh, policy bills which need to be affected by the budget. Um, I can't say, I mean, in the case of, of energy policy, there often is a budgetary component. I'm not sure whether the bill you're thinking of is one of these, but, but you know, for instance, there is uh, there's legislation out there. I don't remember whether it's been signed yet, but which would um, uh, enable, well, which would encourage local governments to arrange for some kind of a payment loop of taxes uh, for certain renewable energy facilities. That reduction in local revenue is often made up by um, is often made up by the state and so in that sense there there's often a policy bill uh, which needs to be supported or is thought to need to be supported by a budget bill so that happens with with you know some frequency um, and it's I mean I can't exactly say that that needing you know to fund uh, programmatic changes is necessarily a bad thing you know depending on what the program is the problem here is that Programs like the expansion of union power um, and the uh, uh, the state directing uh, both private and public uh, efforts toward you know certain types of energy production, certain types of energy consumption, certain types of transportation and whatever outside of market forces, without really establishing uh, that that the majority of Michiganians think that the cost of these uh, decisions are worth the, uh, or are out, don't outweigh the benefits. Um, I, I think that that's where we, we have the problem here. So whether there's a budgetary component to some of the things you're speaking of, I can't say for certain, you know, depending on the bill, 
but whether there is or not, there's certainly a burden, uh, a regulatory burden being placed on you know, various aspects of the economy, uh, whether it be uh, industry uh, or energy or whatever, which will wind up hitting the, the average taxpayer, hitting the average consumer, uh, ultimately, because those, those costs will have to be passed on. Mm-hmm. I do want to ask more specifically about the bill that she recently signed regarding, well, she says part of it is drawing teachers into Michigan, but sort of giving more power to the unions. Can you explain a bit more about what that means for people going forward? Uh, so there are a, a number, I can't remember now whether it's like 7, 9, 12, I, because it, it changed over the course of the, the bill's life. But uh, some issues had been taken out of collected, bar- collected bargaining between um, the, the school districts, uh, the, the superintendents, the administration, and uh, the teachers' unions. The reason for that change is essentially that the uh, those items being negotiated, and again, I don't have the list in front of me. I can't remember exactly which items they are, but in each case, those items uh, being negotiated just sort of seem to be against the public policy of the state and kind of having those things be, um, you know, set as policy by the districts. And by putting them back into the uh, the negotiating space, it probably, first of all, allows for greater variation depending on kind of the attitude and strength of the union in a given area um, and variation on, on which there probably doesn't need to be. Uh, but secondly, it uh, it will, you know, my concern is that it will make it more expensive to administer public schools, which we are already spending record uh, amounts at. And the, I, you know, this is one where I can say there's a budgetary component. The, you know, we're, we're looking at, I believe, the third straight record school budget, which um, is partially because just inflation leads to budgets getting bigger. But there have also been continued kind of new, new, re, you know, reinvestments of additional money into the school aid budget. And uh, somehow the uh, majority is still saying that the school budget is billions and billions of dollars short of where it should be. Um, and if memory serves, it's the second biggest area of spending after health in the in the state. So there's kind of a uh, uh, disconnect, I think, between the reality of what we can afford and uh, where the majority's at on this on this issue right now. And that's where I think the uh, the putting the collective bargaining issues back, you know, putting these issues back into collective bargaining comes from sort of a, a, a failure to realize what the true cost of that's going to be. Mm-hmm. So why do you think that she is sort of put these things back on the table? Um, well, uh, although I don't think it necessarily has to be this way, uh, labor issues have been um, basically uh, advocated within the Democrat Party for a long time in Michigan. And as the Democrats haven't had full control, I mean, I think this would be their explanation. This is just this is a set of issues that has been important to the teachers unions, the Michigan Education Educators or uh, Michigan Education Association for a long time. And so this is kind of their top priority. And it just looks like the, uh, the governor's willing to give each kind of branch of the labor movement whatever its top priority is. Mm-hmm. Sort of looking to the future. Um, what issues are you looking to be discussed uh, when sessions start back up? 
the primary thing that I would like to, to drive a little bit this fall is one that, that even though I'm in minority and, and um, you know, some of the ideas that I've uh, worked on in the last few years uh, would be harder to, to move forward. Um, housing policy is one, and specifically zoning, uh, which I think there's some room not only for bipartisan agreement on, but for actually making some, some meaningful uh, revisions to. So um, I've been in conversation with um, several members of uh, both the majority and kind of other organizations around the state that care about this. And what I would like to see is, um, is some changes that would make the construction and development of housing both single-family, multifamily, all, you know, basically all kinds of it um, freed up so that the, the market can respond to what people need. Uh, as it is now, uh, it's extremely expensive to build a new house. And so there's essentially no you know, middle class or at least a you know, lower middle class uh, housing being built that isn't directly subsidized by the government, uh, which I don't think results in the best housing, nor does it result in kind of the best uh, – uh, responses to where the market really would be if it were affordable to, to build in the first place. So what I'd like to do is, is uh, make several changes, including to the Zoning Enabling Act, which would uh, free the uh, local governments up to um, help uh, kind of fit the zoning, their, their zoning rules to uh, the modern needs of Michigan and would allow builders and uh, subsequently homeowners to kind of operate according to what they're looking for rather than what they're able to do. Can you explain what the um, Zoning Enabling Act is more specifically? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, zoning is the local regula- is the, but, you know, reg- the, the local regulation of land use is, um, it, is what, what we call zoning. And so in an average place, including most of the uh, territory of my district and certainly the vast majority of where people live in the district uh, is zoned. And what that means is that in, in a you know, given piece of land, there are certain uses that are allowed, certain uses that are allowed with, cert- with special permission and certain uses that are just not allowed. And so you, know, you can have a place where you're allowed to build a school or a church, uh, but not a gas station. You could have a place where you're allowed to build a gas station, but not a refinery. And then another place where you're allowed to build a refinery, uh, but not a restaurant. And, that system overall is not, you know, it's not realistic to say that we should start over completely with a brand new system. But what, we, what I think we can accomplish in the near future is uh, in, the residential, uh, in, in the residential space, uh, scaling back some of the things that make it difficult to produce new uh, structures within a zoned community. So... There are things like minimum home sizes. Um, there are minimum lot sizes, minimum parking requirements. All of those uh, involve a city or, uh, in some cases, essentially a planner with a rubber stamp from the city council or the township board uh, deciding that they know that um, only homes of, say, over a 1,000 square feet are comfortable enough for people to live in. That doesn't take into account the variety that, of lives that people are living. You know, if you're a uh, 40-year-old single person, why would you need more than 800 square feet? If you want to do that in a standalone home, what's the harm to anyone else? Uh, that's a question that I don't really think has a good answer. And so 
why does the zoning code say in the, in the city of Hillsdale and many other places around the state say that the minimum home size for a single-family residential unit is 1,000 square feet? So making changes like that, um, removing that minimum home size, um, I think will actually allow municipalities to grow in the ways that uh, they might need to. Um, a related uh, kind of idea, but uh, actually in this case, the local is, uh, in a sense, too restricted, is uh, if a local government right now um, rezones uh, a piece of property uh, and in some sense intensifies the use, say takes it from uh, residential only to mixed use, where maybe they're, they'd be allowed to do commercial on the uh, homeowner or, or property owner would be allowed to do commercial on the main floor and residential upstairs, the way a lot of, say, uh, historic downtown like Hillsdale's is. Uh, if, if the city council were to rezone a property to allow that, then the near neighbors, which are defined as the people within 100 feet, uh, can file protest petitions, and if more than half of them do, uh, then the city council has to reauthorize the change by a vote of at least uh, two-thirds. And I'd like to reduce that to, say, uh, 60% uh, and expand the definition of near neighbor to more than 100 square feet. I'm sorry, yes, 100, uh, 100 feet around, uh, so that a larger portion of the neighborhood can weigh in uh, and prevent, you know, essentially your neighbor from vetoing the development of your property um, out of sort of an inconvenience to them when it really does serve the overall interest of the community. Mm -hmm. What would you need to accomplish that? Well, uh, so what we would really probably be looking at are um, additions to the Zoning Enabling Act, which would re remove certain powers. So the, the locals govern uh, land use through, the zone, through zoning, which they're empowered to do by the state's Zoning Enabling Act. So changing the Zoning Enabling Act to uh, not allow for certain types of local restriction, um, essentially local controls on the, uh, on the development of your property, uh, is, is what we would have to do. And I've got several bills drafted up that I've been in, in discussions with uh, that would address it in various ways. Are there any other issues that you're sort of looking to uh, discuss um, I'll tell you, I've got a couple of other pieces of legislation that I'm working on, one of which fits very firmly into the um, boring lawyer stuff that <laughs> some of my colleagues sometimes poke fun at me for working on. Uh, but, you know, the, it's the kind of thing that I just think, again, as we look at the modern world, um, you know, not all of us always love the way things change and the way technology changes how we live and interact with one another and that kind of thing. Uh, but being realistic about it, accepting that we have to, you know, navigate the circumstances as we are presented by them, uh, I think is an important part of being a good legislator and adapting uh, to what, what the people need under the circumstances you're in. And so the uh, electronic execution of the state planning documents right now is made difficult by our, well, really can't, can't do it uh, with notarization uh, in Michigan right now. Um, so enabling, you know, the sort of remote execution of the state documents, remote notarization of the state planning documents is a piece of legislation I have that I'd like to, to see move forward. And then we may have talked, Megan, I don't remember, we may have talked in the past about another boring lawyer item, maybe, but still worth, worth taking care of. There was some litigation last year uh, over some city council races and judicial races where the applicants 
uh, or the the, uh, the candidate did in, in completing their affidavit of identity to to run for office didn't check a box as uh, regarding their partisan identification. And the reason they didn't uh, check a box is because the office that they are running for, whether it's city council in most places in Michigan or judge uh, across Michigan, is a nonpartisan office. And so in that sense, it makes no sense to, to check a box uh, when you're not allowed to run as a partisan. And so checking the nonpartisan box seems redundant. But there was still litigation over this, and so uh, I got a, a bill introduced, which I had a hearing on. I'd like to see moved this fall, which would allow uh, uh, those candidates to safely not check the box without fear of being removed from the ballot, given that checking the box other than the nonpartisan box is an impossibility anyway. You're listening to Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. My name is Megan Pitcock, and I've been talking to State Representative Andrew Fink. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks as always, Megan.